So I wake up this morning in Munich, Germany. I'm still not completely uh, time adjusted yet. And I closed my drapes and the curtains behind the drapes, you know, those little sheer things they have. But I didn't get it quite right. And I was looking forward to a big sleep in. And one ray of sun hit a tiny little opening like a laser beam, Chuck. Like a laser, it came into my Munich hotel room, hit me right smack in the eye, and woke me up hours before I intended on rising. Which is annoying, and it made me think of three-day blinds, and it made me think of our new sponsor, and it made me think of your incredible uh, experience with these guys not so long ago. Please elaborate. Well, I called Three Day Blinds as soon as they were signed up to be a sponsor on the podcast. And a guy named Michael Vaccaro came out to my house, measured everything, picked out the right you know materials, showed me what would work, what wouldn't, what would match my floor. He was like really good. You know, I think the whole process took maybe about an hour and I signed on the dotted line and he was out the door. But here's the fun thing about this guy is that. Why do you know this guy's name, Michael Vaccaro? He's just like, <laughs> he's like a salesman for them or the installer or what's he do? He's in a, sal- a salesman for three day blinds, but he also happens to be an actor who is a series regular <laughs> on a TV show called The Consultant with Christoph Waltz. So it was really, really funny to, you know, chat with this guy who's an actor. But I mean, like this guy's got work ethic. You know what I mean? He's not hanging around waiting for the next gig. He's making his own in between. And I love that. I think it just goes to show that, man, if you're an actor, I don't care who you're working with or how busy you are. You better have something to fall back on. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, what are the odds that Michael Vaccaro was working with Christoph Waltz, the great German actor? And here I am in Munich, Germany, right now, ranting and raving over the low quality of the. Look, I'm in an otherwise excellent hotel. I'm not complaining. But I don't care what kind of house you live in or what kind of hotel you're in. If you want it dark and it's not dark, your life is not as good as it can be. So are you telling me, Chuck, that the next time I come and crash at your pad in L.A., I'm not going to be awakened by the same sun beaming the same stream of protons into my unsuspecting retina? No, buddy, you're going to sleep till noon, pretty much. You are absolutely going to sleep till (laughs) noon because this thing covers the entire window frame beautifully. Not only that, I got a motorized thing, so I can bring it down from the top and I can bring it up from the bottom. So you can choose like how much light and where you want it from. But here's the greatest part is that Rico came to stay here while I was in North Carolina Mm -hmm. and I can control it from my phone. So, you know, nice and early, I just let the sun in and, you know, well, the joke's on me because he crapped the bed. It scared him so much, but... Uh, <laughs> he crapped your bed. By the my way, My bed, folks, yes. <laughs> Chuck's talking about Rico Colantoni, another fine actor who's been in sitcoms regularly now for like 30 years. Look, I can't guarantee that Michael Vaccaro or Rico Colantoni is going to come to your home to help sell you the three-day blinds, but I can tell you this. Right now, you can get three-day blinds. Buy one, get one for 50% off on custom blinds or shades or shutters or drapes or all of it for a free no-charge, no-obligation consultation. Head to 3dayblinds.com slash row. That's buy one, get one for 50% off when you head to three. That's the number three, dayblinds.com slash row. One last time, the number three, D-A-Y, blinds.com slash row. Enjoy. Waking up in the dark. Having said all that, this is The Way I Heard It, episode number 366. They put him in a cage. Angie's little brother made no attempt to disguise his contempt for the four men who had summoned him. He burst into the room where they were waiting, threw a handful of papers onto the floor, and said, Before we get started, I got just one question. Then, Angie's little brother spoke the words that got him five years in a cage. Four little words that led to five years of screaming, raving, and swearing at everyone around him. Four little words that sealed his fate. Did he deserve it? Absolutely. But it's worth acknowledging that Angie's little brother would have never wound up in that cage, but for the influence of his older sister 15 years before. 
I'm worried about you, kiddo. You can't just sit around Asbury Park for the rest of your life chasing Jersey girls. I'm stuck, Ange. I just don't know what to do with myself. Truth was, Angie had always worried about her little brother. He was small for his age and had been bullied as a kid. And now he was 17, with no prospects, no plan, and no job. Why don't you come on down to the beauty parlor, she said. The girls can teach you how to cut hair. It'll pay the bills, and you might like it. Angela's beauty parlor did a brisk business, and though her little brother had never considered becoming a hairdresser, he showed up the next morning at his sister's salon to give it a try. There was no training program, per se, but the stylists took him under their wing, and before long, he was doing beehives, bouffants, updos, downdos, afros, new pixies, and all the latest styles. Angie's little brother was a natural especially with the older clientele with whom he flirted shamelessly. The old ladies loved the handsome teenager and allowed him to roll the curlers into their frosty manes and practice new styles on their weathered follicles. Then one of his favorite clients, Miss Edith, passed away just a day before her monthly appointment. The next morning, her daughter came to the beauty parlor with a unique request. I don't know if this is appropriate, she said, but my mom, she really loved the way you did her hair. Would you give her one last cut before the viewing later this week? Angie's little brother had never considered becoming a mortician, but he said yes and headed down to the funeral home to curl Miss Edith's hair one last time. When he finished, everyone agreed. Miss Edith looked resplendent in her casket. And so when Miss Clara Owens died a few weeks after that, her son came to Angela's beauty parlor looking for Angie's little brother. I hate to ask, he said, but my mother really loved the way you cut her hair. Would you mind terribly giving her one last blowout? Once again, Angela's little brother said yes. He went to the mortuary with his clippers, his curling iron, and this time with a makeup kit. When her family gathered to say farewell, Miss Clara looked like she was ready for a night on the town. Soon, word spread through Asbury Park about the handsome young hairdresser who worked on the dearly departed. And before long, Angie's little brother was splitting his time between her beauty parlor and various funeral homes around town, styling the hair of the quick and the dead. But he wouldn't have wound up inside that cage, screaming and raving and swearing at everyone around him for five long years, had Angie not made another suggestion. You know, kiddo, you really do have a knack for this. With some actual training, you could make a decent living in cosmetology. Why don't you take some classes in New York City? Well, what kind of classes? Makeup classes, said Angela. They got a great program at the Academy. You'd learn from the best and get to work with all sorts of actors and actresses. And yes, I can help you with the tuition. Angie's little brother had never considered becoming a professional makeup artist, but he gave it a shot and started attending classes at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts where he worked on the faces of aspiring actors and got a front-row seat to dozens of plays and productions. At some point, an instructor pulled him aside and said, Hey, would you like to take a few acting classes? You can probably guess what happened next. Angie's little brother said yes, and two years later, he graduated from the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, not as a cosmetologist, but as an aspiring actor who was ready to say yes. A bit part on Starsky and Hutch? Yes. A petty crook on Policewoman? Yes. A safe cracker who dies in a dumpster on a show nobody watched called Del Vecchio? Yes. An angry misanthrope who lives inside a cage and screams and raves and swears at everyone around him for a pilot that didn't even have a title? Yes. On the day of that audition, 
Angie's little brother showed up in character. He burst into the room where the producers and writers were waiting. He looked at them with undisguised contempt. Then he threw their script to the floor and said, Before we get started, I got just one question. Then Angie's little brother spoke the four little words that sealed his fate and earned him five years in a cage. Who wrote this shit? <laughs> After a few awkward moments of stunned silence, the four men who had created the Mary Tyler Moore show just a few years before and were now struggling to cast a pivotal role in a brand new pilot began to laugh. Not in a polite or obligatory way, but in a loud, uncontrollable way. For nearly five minutes, as tears streamed down their faces, four of the most powerful TV producers in Hollywood lost themselves in a completely unrestrained expression of unbridled mirth as Angie's little brother glared at them, the very embodiment of the character they'd been looking for. It didn't matter what he did after that. The role was his, thanks to the big sister who gave him his first job and his own inclination to say yes. Angela's little brother went on to create a character the TV Guide called the greatest in modern television history, a character that came to life when he improvised four words during the audition that sealed his fate and got him five years in the cage, a dispatcher's cage. Inside the garage where a character called Louis De Palma screamed and raved and swore at everyone around him for five glorious seasons on the set of a TV show called Taxi, a TV show that transformed Angie's little brother from a beautician into a big deal, a very big deal, named Danny DeVito. Anyway, that's the way I heard it. Well, did you figure it out? Are you talking to me? Yeah, I'm talking to you. <laughs> Who else would I talk to? I, th I thought you were talking to the audience. Um, yeah, I figured it out. I can't hear them, Chuck. I can't hear them. Oh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> you know, people are screaming at their, uh, no doubt. Whatever, their devices right now. I kind of knew it already. So. so you don't count. But you know, the first time you told me this story, mm -hmm. the first draft that you read me, I didn't get it until very near the end. I heard Danny DeVito tell this story probably six or seven months ago on an episode of the It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia podcast. Actually, I heard Danny tell a lot of stories, and he just told enough of this one to make me want to learn a little bit more because I just love the idea of him working as a beautician for his sister. In Asbury Park. I mean, I could see the whole thing as he was explaining it. Yeah. And um, modesty aside, I like everything about the story, but enough about me. What do you like about me and the story? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I love the image as well of Danny DeVito because he's not a very tall guy. The first thing I thought of is like, he must be putting these women on like half an apple box to sit down so that he can do their hair. Yeah. Or he's standing reach on a their box hair. to reach their hair, you right. know, if it's a typical beautician's stand. But then the other thing that got me is just imagining Danny DeVito doing the hair, giving a blowout to a deceased lady. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right. I know. It really sticks with you, you know. And apparently it went on for some time. He was super popular at the beauty salon. He was super popular with the morticians. He was just doing his thing. And the more I thought about it and the more I read about it, he was just one of those actors who always said yes. It's funny, in that ridiculously long commercial we just did for Three Day Blinds, here we are talking about actors. Mm -hmm. Our buddy Rico Colantoni, this guy Michael Vaccaro, whoever that is who's selling yeah. blinds now. I mean, you and I have been through it. We've had a lot of jobs that had nothing to do with acting. And, you know, you either stick with it or you don't. And maybe your ship comes in or maybe it doesn't. Maybe you spend the rest of your life doing blowouts on cadavers or maybe you become Louis De Palma. <laughs> you don't know until the dust settles and it's all over.
ain't that the truth? How many gigs did you have that were not acting gigs in your early career? Oh my God. I mean, I did anything. I sold everything, I think. I mean, I water sold filters, magazines. magazines. I sold water filters. I sold whatever they brought me on the QVC cable shopping channel in the middle of the night for three years. I was a salesman before I was an actor, and I wasn't an actor very long, and just intermittently here and there. It took a long time to figure out that there might be a way to make a living by playing myself. Well, QVC really combined those two vocations really well, you know, sort of the performance aspect and the salesman aspect brought together beautifully, and you sold a lot of crap, didn't you? I Literally, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Not QVC... <literally. laughs> they weren't selling literal well, Q... crap. <laughs> Well, you know, opinions vary. The Health Team Infrared Pain Reliever. The Amcor Negative Ion Generator. Eel right. Skin Wallets for him. Plus size fashions for her. It's all coming up next. Collectible dolls, my God. But what it really does, a gig like that will force you to figure out who you're talking to. That's hard sometimes, right? If you're on stage, you're in a performance and you're thinking differently, at least I do. You know, I think more about the character and less about who's in the audience. Because you want to be true to the character that you're playing and you want to be a good scene partner. And so you don't really think too much about who is sitting out there and watching. But when you're on live TV, playing yourself with no script to really rely on or think about, you really have to figure out in your mind's eye who it is you're talking to. And it doesn't matter if it's real or not. It doesn't matter if that actual person exists, but you have to construct some sort of amalgam. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to imagine that person. And so for me on QVC, I was always talking to this weird combination of my mom, my grandfather, you, mm -hmm. <laughs> my buddy Jeff, sure. and, you know, whatever girlfriend I had at the time. They were all just kind of pushed together and I would try and say things that I thought this composite person might find amusing. And maybe some of that goes on in the audition process, maybe more so than the performance. I don't know. I just know when Danny DeVito walked into that room wow. in front of the producers <laughs> and said, who wrote this shit? That was a very ballsy way to audition. Nobody told him what to say, but what he proved in that moment is that he had an interpretation of the character that somebody else had written, and he wanted to show them that he owned it or that he could personify it. And that he understood it, that he knew exactly what they had written. Right. Because that's an exact Louis de Palma move. Yeah. I wish I had heard that story before a thousand auditions that I went on. One of the terrible things about me auditioning, because I believe I was a horrible auditioner. Mm -hmm. I feel like if I got the job, I did great. But I don't think I was very good at auditioning because, I, first of all, I was sort of taught incorrectly <clears throat> that to always treat an audition like it's an audition and not necessarily a performance. Right. And that's totally, right. totally wrong. wrong. But you know where I learned wrong. that, Mike? At the American, the American Academy, Academy. Of Dramatic, <laughs> of American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Yes, where Danny DeVito went. <laughs> That's the craziest uh. part of it. But listen, I want to go back to like what you did. Like Danny DeVito was a hairstylist. Like the things that you did, the jobs. Can you, do you remember your very first job? Well, I remember the Golden Ring Mall was sort of the repository for all vocational attempts coming out of high school. I think the first place I worked might have been American Eagle Outfitters. I was going to ask if that was your first job. You didn't deliver newspapers or anything before that? Oh, you mean like jobs for money, like a paycheck. I mean, I yes, did lots yes. of stuff for cash. No, as a kid, yeah, there were thousands. I dug graves. Um, no, really? Know, for Oh, yeah. Gardens of Faith Cemetery. Sure. It was yeah, right by your summer. house. Yeah. I would work, you know, I would sort of be my pop's apprentice from time to time. I would work... Uh, no steady work ever. The first paycheck I think I ever got was from American Eagle Outfitters or maybe United Artists. I can't remember which came first, but I... No, no. I remember. You got the job at American Eagle 
in Golden Ring Mall, which of course was a place that kids love to go. And I came to see you at your job and I looked around and I was like, this looks pretty cool. I like the stuff at this store. Can you get me a job? And you did. You recommended me. I filled out an application. And like, you know, after that, we were working together. And then... Dude, I totally when, forgot about that. I have totally. no recollection of working with you at American Eagle Outfitters. Yes, yes, we did. We worked together at American Eagle. And then this was before the United Artists movies opened in Golden Ring Mall. And then once they opened, I'm on my lunch break from American Eagle and I'm wandering around and I'm looking around. I'm going like, man... I'd like to work at the movies. And so I filled out an application. I got that job. And then I went down to American Eagle and said, hey, man, you should come work at the movies with me. And you came up and we worked together at the movies. That's the way I remember it. Yeah. Well, here we go again, folks. It's a brand new year. And if you're like half of all living sentient bipeds in this country, you've made some resolutions. Don't know what you've resolved to do. I just know that it's a chance to wipe the slate clean and hit the reset button. And if you're trying to hire people, well, maybe you've resolved to make hiring a little better this year, a little easier. If that's the case, I dare say that ZipRecruiter.com is going to help all your resolutions come true, or at least the ones that apply to being fully staffed, ZipRecruiter helps you find quality candidates really, really, really fast. And right now you can try them for free. You know where. ZipRecruiter.com slash row. And honestly, why wouldn't you? As soon as you post your job, ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology starts showing you candidates with the right skills and experience. They've been doing this now for like, must be close to 10 years. It works. Nobody else comes close. Try them. Try them. You rate your candidates as they come in, and then ZipRecruiter sends you more candidates whose skills match your role from the thousands of new job seekers who join the site every day. Just do it for free, please. I beg you. I beg you. It's way more persuasive than anything I can say. You go to ZipRecruiter.com slash row, and you try it for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash R-O-W-E. They're the smartest way to hire, my friends. That was true last year and five years before that, and who knows how far into the future we're talking. ZipRecruiter.com slash row. The smartest way to hire. The smartest way to hire. Yeah. Well, that is the way you heard it, and I think that's the way it was, really. What's squishy is, I don't know how long I worked at that complex, but... I do remember that if it wasn't the first multiplex in a mall, it was among the first. I think it was the first. We had five theaters in the Golden Ring Mall. Three of them were down by Montgomery Wards, and two of them were on the other end of the mall by the Hecht Company. Totally the other side of the mall. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And there were times, you know, like especially if you were a projectionist, you had to run from one side of the mall to the other to get the platters on the thing. Yeah. Right. Because the movie starts when it starts. And do you remember there was a restaurant called Italian Delight? Remember the <laughs> yes. Italian Delight? Which was barely Italian and definitely not a delight. It was not a delight. <laughs> but on, a, on the weekends, the people would show up you know, by the hundreds. I mean, it was a very, very popular place. And especially down by Montgomery Wards, you had these three theaters and they were all Mm -hmm. buying tickets and they were all queuing up more or less at the same time. So it was really confusing. You had to get people in the right line, right? And then you had to coordinate the exit. This is in our capacity as ushers. (laughs) So we didn't merely tear tickets, folks. We handled crowd control. I haven't thought about this in years, but I remember a searingly embarrassing moment, you know, because we had to walk out and they always sent me out because I had a big voice and I could yell and I could like really like people would listen to me in spite of the fact that I was wearing a red buttoned up ridiculous jacket with black tuxedo pants and and a clip on (laughs) bow tie, black bow tie. tie. Yeah. So... I think the movies that were playing on this particular announcement that I had to make were, call it Maniac. You remember that awful movie, Maniac, that was playing when we were working there? Oh, God, it was a slasher movie. It gave me nightmares. But there was another movie called Prince 
of the city. And then there was one called Nice Dreams with Cheech and Chong. Right? (laughs) Right. Okay. So I had to walk out and tell people, if you're here to see Prince of the City, form a line right in the center. And if you're here to see, what was the other one I mentioned? Not Nice Dreams. Maniac. Maniac. uh, Stand over here to the right. And if you're here to see Nice Dreams, form a line against the gray wall by Italian Delight. And I walked out, and in my loudest voice, I said, ladies and gentlemen, we thank you for your patience. There's a lot of moving parts here, so let's not get this confused. If you're here to see Maniac, go ahead and line up off to the right. If you're here to see, what was the other one I said? (laughs) Maniac and uh, Nice Dreams. And the other one? Um, Prince of the City. Prince of the City? Yeah. And if you're here to see Prince of the City, go ahead and line up in the center. And if you're here to see wet dreams form a line against the gray wall (laughs) of the Italian delight. And by this point, everybody's really listening to me, right? They're like nodding their heads. And I could still hear my voice like echo off the front of the Montgomery Ward sign. Come back. Wet dreams, dreams. Dreams. I was like, ah, damn. So now you're in showbiz, pal. My gosh, do you remember part of our duties as an usher was to walk down to the front where the thermostat, walk down to the front of the cinema where the thermostat was, check the thermostat, and then walk up. And do you remember when I said to you, hey, come in here, check this out. And, And so I said, just stand here in the back. Just wait here and watch me. And so I just walk down, you know, just walk down in my little red jacket, blah, blah, blah. I remember this. Get all the way to the front. I walk, you know, over to the side. Turn on my little flashlight. Mm, yeah, the temperature looks good. Turn it off. Turn around, and then I walk back up the aisle. And as I walk back up the aisle, I look over my left shoulder at the movie, and I trip over my foot, and I just land like face first, take a tumble so much so that the patrons are going, "Oh my God, are you okay?" You People know, people stood up, like, yeah, dude. Yeah, People stood up to run over to see if you you actually hovered for a minute. Full extension, you were planking in midair, midair. and you hit the ground like a cheap card table and literally made the sound, oof, could hear all the air (laughs) rush out. And I snorted. That was good. We used to call those uh, Brody, right? (laughs) Yes, right. It's just a great pratfall, man. That was great. And then you were like, the next movie, you were like, okay, let me try. And so you did it. (laughs) And then we just started doing that to amuse ourselves while we were waiting for the movies to end. Totally ruining people's experience. So like, Terrible. I guess, you know, there's Danny DeVito trying to figure out his life, you yeah. know, trying to amuse himself, flirting with the old ladies in Angie's barbershop and, and then giving them blowouts after they died. And there I am, you know, screaming out instructions, what to do in the wake of a wet dream. And there you are <laughs> taking a face plant on purpose in a dark theater just to get a rise out of people. In some ways, I guess maybe certain kinds of people are always trying to get a reaction out of someone. And a lot of other people don't. They really don't want to get a reaction out of, out of anyone. Those people never become actors or performers or singers. Or That to me is the thing. That's the, if you want to see the needle move in the way of a human reaction, you've checked the first box to answer the question, is a career in entertainment even possible for you? Mm-hmm. And I guess looking back, yeah, it was clearly possible for us. We were such idiots, Chuck. Do you remember <laughs> when we weren't working at American Eagle or at the United Artists on a Friday night? We would put on Hawaiian shirts and ties. And neckties. <laughs> and neckties. And we would go back to the Golden Ring Mall and we would go to Friendly's. And we would like order the zoo and we would eat pounds and pounds of ice cream. And then we would pick up like a bottle of champagne. Who does that? You know, Andre's. Why would we? Two bucks a bottle. (laughs) Unless we were feeling flush and then it was Taylor's extra dry. We got Taylor extra dry champagne and we dressed in Hawaiian shirts and we wore neckties. And looking back, my God, what were we thinking? Why would we do that? but for to get people to look at us and get some kind of reaction. We'd pick up girls and break into 
apartments, apartment complexes. The pools, yeah. To go skinny dipping. Yes. <laughs> what, what the heck? Climbing under fences or over fences. And remember, this was in the days where, like, there was one place that we went to. I don't think it was an apartment complex, but a public pool. And they had a high dive. And yeah. we were, you know, drinking champagne and jumping off the high dive at, uh, you know, two in the morning. Ridiculous. So, I mean, is there a corollary between that kind of ridiculous behavior and whatever is alive and well in Danny DeVito that allowed him to walk into that audition and do something so audacious that his entire career took a turn? Like, was there ever a moment in your life when you did something like that in an actual audition? Or did the American Academy just really get in your head and prohibit you from doing that? forever and ever. I can think of one example where I tried something audacious and it did not work. <laughs> it's literally the kind of audition that haunts me to this very day. I can be driving down the road by myself, just in my mind, you know, driving, thinking, and think of being in the middle of this audition. And I just go, oh my God. Why, like it still it will that? hit me like that. And this was, I'd gone to the casting director, I read for the producers, and now I was going to the network for a pilot of a show and uh, in which I was playing a stand-up comedian. Mm -hmm. And I decided I'm going to make this my own. I'm forgetting the script and I'm going to improvise a lot of stuff. But when I say improvise, I mean, I just rewrote it. Mm-hmm. And I went big, I went super big, and every one of the jokes, there was, you know, I'm, this is, I'm, you know, in a, basically a, a small studio, but there are maybe 15 people in there. Mm -hmm. And after every punchline that I hit, nothing, not even a little chortle. <laughs> and so what did I do? I just turned it up to 11 and yeah. just went bigger and bigger. And the bigger I went, the worse it the got. The worse it got. Yeah. And it was, thank you. And I remember the casting director's face looking at me like, what in holy hell <laughs> did you just do as I walked out of there? That was for a show, a little show called Full House. <laughs> oh, dude. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it was brutal, well, dude. I mean, in the end, I guess it's risk-reward. You know, you just have to decide, is it worth the risk to go off the reservation, knowing full well that most of your competitors won't? They're all going to play by the rules. They came out of the American Academy and they're going to. And so you have to decide, am I going to distinguish myself by taking an inordinate amount of risk or Am I going to just stay in line and do my best and follow all the instructions? And there's just no way to know when you're going to get punished for that or when you're going to get rewarded. There's no way to know. Well, I mean, the key to it is you have to execute it. If you're going to go big and bold the way I attempted and the way Danny DeVito did, you got to pull it off. You got to land it <laughs> and it's got to work. In his case, it totally did. In mine, it was like, no, you totally missed it. Yeah. I'll tell you when I went for it and I couldn't believe it worked was the first audition I ever crashed for the Baltimore Opera. You know, they had open calls the last Thursday of every month. I just wrote about this on Facebook. By yeah, the way, folks. It, Michael Gellert. Because yeah. my buddy Mike Gellert, who I just saw the week before when I was in Baltimore, and I know I got to talk to you about my dad's heart attack and all that yeah. stuff. And right now... I really am in Munich, believe it or not, for an audition. I'm on the other side of the world right now, <laughs> auditioning for something. It's just so strange to listen to this story. What are you auditioning for, Mike? Can't get into it. I'm not allowed to tell. <laughs> you're, I'm not. you're like Rico promoting his show that he couldn't tell us about. I'm like, this is I not know. very much promotion. Well, I've already done the work. I think it went really well, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to get it. But I haven't yet. Right now, I'm just a guy in Munich, freezing. It's so cold here. It's like absolute zero. And I finished the work I was supposed to. It's cold. Absolute zero is something like 400 degrees below zero. Yeah, give, give me an actual stops. temperature. Fahrenheit, if you, if you have it. Fahrenheit, I'd say 19. 
Oh, that is cold. 18, yeah, cold. Yeah. 19 degrees. And it's breezy. And I just saw some guys surfing in the local river. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Anyway, I'll, I'll circle back to that. My point was, um, <laughs> Mike Gellert helped me learn the shortest aria I could find. And in that open call on a Thursday, I sang it. And I know I've told this story before, but in the context of DeVito's audition, I think it's the closest I came to... I didn't know what I was saying, Chuck. This was in Italian. Sure. So, yeah. A, I don't really know what the words mean. And I get about halfway through it, and the Bill Yanuzzi, the musical director, is kind of looking at me, his head's cocked to the side a little bit. He speaks seven languages, all fluent. And right. I realize now that, you know, there's not much difference between me getting the words right that I've memorized and just complete gobbledygook, at least in my head. It all right? I'm just really making up sounds with an Italian accent. And I know, I know this guy is looking at me and I know he's, he must be thinking to himself, what, what does this guy think he's, does he really think he's going to get away with this? And I had a moment of just complete feeling like, hmm, I have to turn around and just run out of here now with whatever's <laughs> left of my dignity. The jig is up. They know you're a fake. They know you don't know what you're doing. But I didn't. I actually did what you did. I went bigger. I sang louder. And I just acted like I knew what I was doing. Because what Gellert told me was, look, they need young guys with low voices. I can right. help get you in there. And so all I thought was, well, let's just see how badly they need they young need guys them. with low voices. <laughs> <laughs> so he stopped me afterwards and he said, Mr. Rowe, uh, <clears throat> you have no idea what you're saying, do you? And I said, no, sir, I don't. <laughs> and then, of course, he called Gellert over and said, you know, if you'll assume responsibility for him and actually teach him something... We'll let him in. That's the closest I think I ever came to saying who wrote this shit. <laughs> but in hindsight, I think I was probably thinking that. And the answer was Giacomo Puccini, who turned out ah. to be pretty talented. Yeah. All right, right. Well, here I am again with some more information that you already know, but it's worth repeating. Better nutrition is the key to health and longevity. It's just kind of true, and it's kind of important. I've had some major health scares in my family here of late. Perhaps you've, you've heard, if you've been following the odyssey of my dad, he's made all sorts of resolutions at 91 to enjoy a healthier diet. I don't care how old you are or what kind of condition your heart's in. You should do the same. Field of Greens is my healthy super fruit and vegetable habit it should be yours too because it's the only fruit and vegetable product that literally promises better health. I say promises as though it's in italics and underlined because it is. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you get your money back. Do your vitamins or other green drinks promise better health like that? Spoiler alert, no, they do not. Each super fruit and vegetable in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for a specific health benefit. Some support your heart, lungs, kidneys. Others support metabolism for healthy energy and weight loss. Whatever it is, it's good. If you've resolved to get healthier in 2024, it starts with Field of Greens, 15% off your first order, and free rush shipping if you act now at fieldofgreens.com. Use promo code Mike for 15% off. That's promo code Mike at fieldofgreens.com. Fieldofgreens.com. A one, two, three. Nutrition like you never seen when you swallow Field of Greens. Well, hey, let's talk about your dad. Uh, he had a health scare in December that was really bad. And I know you've posted about it that, uh, you know, you went to see him, you played some shuffleboard with him, and apparently he kicked your ass, which is good to hear. Where is, is he now? I mean, he's home. He's home, thank God. Um, if you haven't been following all of it on Facebook, the short version is he, he had these chest pains 
for a week. And he went to get him checked out. And I mean, not just chest pains, he's stabbing, crushing pain with numbness in the arms. It sure sounded like a heart attack. Like a heart attack, yeah. But, you know, he took the stress test and they couldn't find a blockage. And they took his blood and they couldn't find the enzymes that would typically indicate the occurrence of a cardio event. They did EKGs and EEGs and all the stuff and nothing came back suggesting that he had a heart attack. What they thought was, you know, it's some kind of indigestion, maybe acid reflux. He had a lot of gas, a lot of burping, you know, so it seemed like, well, you know, a lot of things can present as a heart problem that really aren't. And so they sent him home. This is maybe three days before Christmas. And he was home and we were all so relieved, you know, my dad's got really bad indigestion. Fine. It sounds so different than my dad just had a giant heart attack. Oh, no, what's going to happen? But um, he had a couple more. But he sat down and he kind of got through them two days before Christmas, one day before Christmas. Christmas Day, he's like having these pains, but he's taking gas X and just like yeah. rubbing a little dirt on it. And, you know, my mom very much wants to believe that the day after Christmas, they're going to go see a gastroenterologist and, and we're going to get this thing straightened out. And then the next morning, he had a full-on heart attack, man, just a full-on EMTs, sweat pouring off of him. Stay with us, John. Stay with us. That kind of shouting. And my mom was a wreck and they're back at the hospital and, oh, you know, the waiting room and the emergency rooms are overrun and you know, they get him in and they look at him again and they're like, yeah, man, we, we missed it. The test is wrong. He's had a heart attack. And then he had another one while he was in there. Aye. Then they rush him over to Union Memorial. They do the, uh, the angioplasty, right? And get pictures of his heart. And, you know, left main was 98% blocked. It's a miracle he survived it. Yeah. yeah. And so I don't want to, you know, wallow around in all the details, but my brother came up from Florida immediately. I was not able to travel immediately, but I got there a couple days later as soon as I could. So we sort of switched places and I'd spent five days with him. And, you know, every day was a little better. He's a strong man. I just... Yeah. He has to be to have survived that. He's 91 years old, right? And yeah. so... So look, the moral of the story is, A, I just want to bring people up to speed. My mom has had many thousands of people reach out, and I have too, and we're so grateful for that. But look, this is not a perfect science. You know, tests are not always reliable, and it's not necessarily the doctor's fault. False positives are a real thing. False negatives, I guess, in this case, are a real thing. And until you get the angioplasty, is that what it's called, angioplasty or angiogram? Whatever the thing is, you know. They... Is the angioplasty, I think, is where they put something in your, they go through your groin up into your... They go through like, your groin, through your a, main veins, they get into your heart. And stent they, in there. Yeah. yeah. That's basically what they did. They went in through his wrist, they went in through his groin, they looked around and they, they identified it. Brilliant doctors. Three stents later, he was home, I think, maybe 48 hours after that. But look, here's the real point of sharing all this. You have to listen to your body, not to the exclusion of expert advice necessarily, but you can't ignore what your body is telling you. My dad knew. He knew something was fundamentally wrong, and he felt it in his heart. He might not have wanted to feel it, but he knew. And my mom knew. She didn't want to hear it, but she knew. And the cardiologist you know, I was very concerned for a while there until I really asked around and kind of went to school on this thing. And the bottom line is that process that really and truly did confirm what was going on in his heart, that's not a thing you do lightly, not to a 91-year-old man. You don't put him on right. the table and start doing something that invasive. So in the absence of anything other than what he felt, they sent him home. And it very nearly cost him his life. So there you go. That's my PSA for this episode. The moral is to speak up. It's to speak up. Even if you're going to say things you hope aren't true, even if you're going to be accused maybe of being, I don't know, overly cautious or sensitive or whatever it is. No, that's not the moral, Chuck. The moral is 
don't ignore your body. Mm. You can't always trust it, but you should never ignore it. And these things come down to judgment calls. And it's been a couple of weeks now, and I can tell you that every day has been a little better. He's back to playing pool. He's back to competing in shuffleboard. He's walking around. He's doing his physical therapy. Hell of a way to start the new year. But it's inspirational to see. He's tough. He's tough. And my mom was just amazingly strong through this whole thing, too. So, again, thank you all for your kind words at a tough time. It was much appreciated. That's great. I'm glad to hear that he's up and about. He is really tough. And um, your mom apparently did a great job <laughs> taking care of him, you know. Um, how scary was it for you? You know, of course, it's mostly helpless. You know, you're 3,000 yeah. miles away. And you're getting third-hand information, and there's not a damn thing you can do. There's just not a thing you can do. And, you know, there's no audition for this kind of thing. You know, there's no playbook right. for it. It's odd because I know you've been through it with loved ones, and I would wager that the overwhelming vast majority of the people listening right now have either experienced it or love someone who's gone through it. So there's nothing new to say, really, it's just all of a sudden, it's you, or it's someone you care about, yeah. and you're the one who's feeling helpless. And, you know, it's like, wow, I'm, you know, no one will understand this. And then you realize, well, of course, everyone will understand this. It's only the most universal thing there is. It's the big chill. It's the sum of all fears. It's the, right. you know, it's that awful feeling. Way more relatable than an audition that goes off the rails. You know, it's real life. It's not a role. Yeah. You're not auditioning for anything. You're just waking up and all of a sudden you're dealing with things. My mom, it's, you know, we were talking earlier. It's so funny. You know, you make these plans, whether it's for the podcast or whether it's for this gig I'm doing over here in Munich, whatever it is, you visualize it, you think about it, you do everything you can, you write it down, you embark upon it, and then something happens that, just completely upends your whole day, week, month, everything, everything. That old expression, you know, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. <laughs> I like the, uh, what uh, Harold Macmillan said all those years ago, prime minister of, uh, of Britain, when he was asked, what course will determine the direction your government takes, prime minister? He said, Events, dear boy. Events. I mean, that's it, right? The Suez Canal and that whole debacle comes along and everything he had planned. Is, you know, that actually got him into office. And then after that, one event after the next, one event after the next. COVID, lockdowns, heart attacks, technical failures. Events, dear boy. <laughs> Events. Events. Okay, so back to Danny DeVito. What does he do? He takes a, a chance with this audition in a pretty big way. But if you go back and listen to the interview that I heard, and by the way, folks, do it. I don't know if you know It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It's a great show. It's basically South Park, except it's not animated. It's like real people, people running a bar in Philadelphia. It is irreverent. It is uh, blasphemous and sacrilegious and laugh out loud, ridiculous and funny. And Danny DeVito is doing some just great work in it, playing Frank Reynolds. Love it. So Danny is the guest on the Always Sunny podcast, and these guys are talking to him. And I told you earlier, that's where I first heard the remnants of this story. But the story that surrounds it is even better. And I don't know if I told you this, Chuck, but... Like the real Danny DeVito story that I wanted to write was just beyond my capacity. It was just too complicated to tell in the format of the, well, the format that we use on the podcast. But what really happens to Danny back in like, I think it was 1968, he said, he was uh, doing some plays from, uh, oh, Pyramidello, I think, was the writer. These short one-act oh, yeah. plays. And there's a role in one of them that he's perfect for. It's the role of the stable boy, the irreverent, foul-mouthed stable boy. 
And he is desperate to audition for it. And he gets a call from the general manager of the theater uh, who says, look, I want you to read for this role of the stable boy. And Danny's like, finally, this is it. This is my shot. That's the role for me. But the GM goes on to say, here's the thing. That role's already cast, okay? What I need you to do is just read for it. Or I think what they say, you've done this, I've done this. Just read it. Yeah, just read it, yeah. Yeah, they need to hear it out loud. You're not necessarily the guy who's going to play the part, but it's for the writers and the producers. In this case, the backers. So you got financial Mm. backers in the theater. And Danny DeVito agrees to read for a part he has no possibility of getting because it's cast. And the guy who's cast in the role is William Devane. Okay, so William Devane, of course, you know who William Devane is now. You flick around the news. He's the guy holding up the gold coin saying, are you safe? Look at that. Thirty four trillion dollars in debt. Right. So that's Bill Devane. Now, he went on to have a terrific career, but he didn't know that in 1968. He just knows he's got the part of the irreverent stable boy. And Danny DeVito is desperate for the part, but he has no shot of getting it. But he reads anyway. And a few days later, the financial backers come through and this play gets greenlit. And in no time, it goes into production. And shortly before opening night, William Devane goes to the producer and the general manager and says, look, fellas, I hate to do this, but I just got cast in the role of a lifetime in a very big off-Broadway production and I got to go. I'm sorry. So the GM is like, ay, ay, ay. So they call Danny DeVito. And they say, hey, that role, that stable boy, guess what? It's yours if you want it. He's like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. So they go and they do his first performance is for the critics. All right? Sold right. out house, but it's all critics. And he goes on stage and he kills He's so good. He knows he killed it. Everybody around him is doing their best work. They're jubilant. They're ebullient. They know they've got a hit on their hands. He goes home, and uh, the next day he comes back to the theater, gets there a little early because he, you know, he likes to walk around and kind of take it all in, and he, he gets to the theater. <laughs> and guys on ladders are taking the marquee down, all right? <laughs> The reviews were so bad that they canceled the show after one performance for the critics. And he's devastated. And he turns around and one of the actresses in the play has brought her girlfriend along to see that night's show. And of course, she's devastated too. But Danny starts talking to her girlfriend just about the vagaries of the business and the injustice of it all. And her name was Rhea. So Danny goes to get coffee with Rhea Perlman, who turns out to be the love of his life and the mother of his children. He doesn't know it yet, but he's having that kind of a day. And then he gets a call from the general manager who has a friend who's involved in another play going on in another part of Broadway. Pretty big production. And he calls and he says, hey, we got a role that you could audition for in this other play, but it's a last minute thing and we need you. So Danny DeVito goes the next day to audition for the role of Martini in a play called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And the lead in that play, the guy playing R.P. McMurphy is William Devane. William Devane. (laughs) (laughs) so he learns his lines lickety split he gets on stage the critics come milos foreman comes they're all there everybody loves this thing and danny stays with it he gets a great review milos foreman decides you know something i'm going to turn this thing into a movie who are we going to cast who could we get for martini i like the little guy I like that Danny DeVito guy. They cast him in the movie. William Devane is out. Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholson is, is in. in. Yeah. So 
What I wanted to tell you, Chuck, what I wanted to write about when I first sat down and listened to that story was, my God, the worst day in his life turned into the day where he met his wife and got cast in the actual role that would give him the actual break that would eventually lead Jim Burroughs and those other producers to invite him mm -hmm. to come and audition for the role that TV Guide called the greatest TV character of all time. And to get that role, all he had to do was make fun of the people who wrote the script in the style of the character he imagined he would embody named Louis De Palma. So Danny DeVito walks in with all the confidence in the world and says, who wrote this shit? And the next chapter of his life begins. But none of it happens, Chuck, unless he agrees to do something that a lot of actors would never do. And that is read for a part that was already cast. Yeah, that's saying yes. <laughs> that's saying yes to a question that can't possibly lead to anything other than a brick wall. But you say yes anyway. That's character. That's the story I wanted to write. But what kept coming out was, I just have to see in my mind's eye him blow drying the hairs of dead women. I just need to see <laughs> yes. Louis de Palma do that. Otherwise, what's the point? There was a lot of story there. You know, the one thing that occurred to me too while you were telling that is, you know, where Danny DeVito got disappointed with that and uh, Bill Devane got disappointed with What Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, he also missed out on playing the lead role in Cheers, right? As we learned from Rob Long. Right. <laughs> you know, right. He was up William for the Devane lead. was that close to Ted Danson's part of, uh, what's it, Sam Malone. Sam Malone, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. I don't think civilians would really understand just how crazy strange it can be to be around a table with a bunch of working actors who start to connect the dots. And when they really go back and start talking about their old instructors and their own scene partners and those early auditions, it's probably the best example of how effort either pays off or doesn't. You know, it, I mean, it's obviously you're cherry picking and it's a lot of revisionist history when you look back and everything suddenly seems so destined but of course, in the moment, it's not, you know, Danny DeVito is a great actor, not because of all the great performances he's done, but it's the point I tried to make in that story about, um, what's his name? Alan Hale Jr., a great character actor of great character. An know? actor of great character, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know what? As long as we're talking about character, and as long as you're going to Google this uh, episode of Always Sunny that I've mentioned, Google something else. This is Danny DeVito's best performance, in my opinion. And before I tell you what I'm thinking of, do you have one? Like, is there a moment that you remember, either from stage or, or screen or TV? Of Danny DeVito's? Yeah. Uh, no, I don't have a specific one. All right, I got one. I got two. One, they actually talk about in this interview, Rob McElhaney, I think, makes the point that the greatest entrance in the history of television belongs to Danny DeVito as Louis De Palma. Because initially he was just a voice, and then the, the writers made him a character, but they didn't reveal him. You only saw him from the shoulders up because he was in a cage. Right, he lived right. in a cage. And when he was standing up in that cage, he looked a full head taller than Judd Hirsch and, and everybody in the cast. And then there's a moment where he and Alex are arguing. Alex wants to take a cab and drive it up somewhere upstate or something. And he says, no, you can't have it for a joyride. And it looks like they're going to have a confrontation, and they do. He kicks the door open and comes down the stairs. And then he's pointing up at Judd Hirsch, and he's only he's four foot eight or whatever it is. And the audience had no idea. Right. No one knew who he, who he really was. Yeah, they only saw him point. from the shoulders up. They thought he was sitting down up in the cage. Yeah. yeah. So such a great entrance, and that was fun. But in terms of a performance, there's a movie called The Big Kahuna, and he plays a salesman. It's on my mind because we were talking about QVC and Dial America, and this is one of the greatest monologues I've ever seen. And he delivers it perfectly. 
and he delivers it to a salesman named Bob, and he basically explains what character is. And it takes oh, him about... Right. I know that, yes. It, dude, it's so good. It's, it's I don't even... Yeah. 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 I don't even want to try. and Just go watch it. And, you know, when I saw it the first time, I really only knew DeVito from that one role. And the fact that he broke out of that, you know, the fact that he didn't allow the hugeness of that role to typecast him and the fact that he was able to do so many other things. You know, he produced, with Michael Douglas, all those movies, Romancing the Stone. He produced Pulp Fiction. He was one of the producers on that. I did not know that. He did so many things in so many different roles. If you think about uh, Get Shorty, amazing. Oh, right. That's a great performance, yeah. Amazing. I love that. And then was he in Tin Men also? I seem to recall him doing a Baltimore accent selling yeah. uh, aluminum, aluminum siding. siding. Was that Tin Men? Yeah. yeah. That was Tin Men. But this big kahuna thing is even better. Gosh, God, I wish I could remember it. There's a part where Bob basically is saying, are you saying I don't have character yet because I haven't done anything stupid? And Danny says, no, Bob, you've done plenty of stupid things. I'm saying you don't have character because you haven't realized it yet <laughs> and when you do the totality of your mistakes will be tattooed upon your forehead for all to see and then you will have character it's brutal and good you'll love it anyway we could have got danny devito for this conversation probably if we'd <laughs> ask him no, we couldn't have gotten Danny DeVito for this conversation because I wouldn't be able to say who the guest was in the beforehand. Oh, you know? oh that's right. We couldn't tease it without giving it away. Obviously, yeah. folks, we're, uh, we're working through the details of an ever-evolving format, but the fact that you're still listening gives me great hope for 2024. As for auditions, I can't really tell you why I'm in Munich yet, but hopefully I will soon. It's cold over here, Chuck. It's cold. You, you did mention that 19 degrees is the number that you put to it. It's not just the temperature. It's the wind. And there's just something about, I think, 19 degrees in Germany feels different than 19 degrees in Baltimore. <laughs> I don't know why. Hmm. It's just cold. I, I don't know either, but. <laughs> I went to the Alps. I went to the very top of the Alps. That was exciting. Great. I recommend it. Yeah, you should All do right, it. Sometime. I'm going to put that on my list. Yeah. No, you're not. Do you even have a list? No. No, there's no list. There's no list, man. You know what we're going to do this year with you? Talk forever? We're going to get you a haircut. Come on. We're going to get you a haircut, and we're going to film it. I'm going to find a ridiculously expensive, fabulous barber to the stars, and we're going to give you the hairstyle you deserve for 2024, and we're going to film it. You don't think this is working for me? Oh, I mean, it might be working for you. <laughs> anyway say goodbye mike yeah look to sum up thanks again for all your well wishes for my dad and my mom yes. i mean that yes. have yourself a great and happy new year thank you for uh, suffering through another one of these uh, free associative audition fueled diatribes what a treat it is to see you my friend i'll be back in the states in a couple of days and we'll do it again next week awesome till then this episode is over now, I hope it was worthwhile, sorry it went on so long, but if it made you smile, then share your satisfaction in the way that people do, take some time to go online, and a review. I hate to ask, I hate to beg, I hate to be a nudge. But in this world, the advertisers really like to judge. You don't need to write a bunch, just a line or two. All you've got to do is leave a quick five-star review. All you've got to do is leave a quick five-star review. And not three. All you've got to do is leave a quick five-star review. Definitely not two. All you've got to do is leave a quick five-star review. We need five. All you've got to do is leave a quick five-star review. Especially if you hate it.
Thank you. <laughs> Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com records.